Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Can you really believe that Jesus of Nazareth died and literally rose from the dead about 1,986 years ago? Is that really true? Or is that just a tradition that Christians believe and we don't really have good evidence for it? I mean, what's really the truth about it? Because you hear people say, look, <laughs> come on. The, the Bible, the New Testament's written down by religious people. How, how can you trust what they've written? We know religious people embellish things. They make things up. Can you really believe that's true? Well, ladies and gentlemen, if it really is true, it's literally the most important fact that human beings need to know. But just knowing it if it is true, won't get your moral transgressions forgiven. You just can't believe that it's true. Even the demons believe that it's true, if in fact it did happen. But they don't trust in Christ for forgiveness of sins. But if it really is true, it's literally the most important fact anyone could ever know. I remember, must go back now, this is probably 10 years ago now, I was at the University of Maryland uh, and I was speaking, and I don't, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, and as I normally do, we, we take a lot of questions, and toward the end of the presentation, after this is even after all the questions are over, I mean, we're, I'm just like packing up my computer, and there are several atheists standing around just asking me questions, we're having a conversation, and one of them was really down on the New Testament, and it, he was saying things that made me think, I don't even know if he knows what's in the New Testament, and so I asked him. Have you ever read the New Testament? And he was stunned. He was flummoxed. He had never even read it. And I said to him, look, I don't care where you're from. I don't care what religion or non-religion you were brought up in. Jesus of Nazareth is inarguably the most influential human being to ever walk the earth. If you're going to call yourself a seeker of truth, you have to at least read what he allegedly said and did. You may read it and not agree with it. You may read it and think it's bunk, but you can't just ignore it. If you're going to consider yourself somebody who is intellectually honest and intellectually curious, because if Jesus really is who the New Testament says he is, then every human being's eternity is locked up in what they decide to do with Jesus of Nazareth. He said, if you don't believe what I said, if you don't believe who I am, then you're going to be, you're going to die in your sins. So is it really true? Can we believe documents written down by religious people? I mean, what evidence do we really have for this? Now, look, if it is true, it's the most, as I said, the most important fact in the world. It's also the most consequential fact in the world. Because it means that 
not only will we survive death in some sense, but we will enter paradise. We will enter bliss if it really is true. But just because it sounds good doesn't necessarily make it true. We have to have evidence for it and we we have to investigate that evidence. And that we're, that's what we're going to do here in this program here today. We're going to take a step back and look at what evidence do we have that the resurrection really did occur. Now, before we get there, as you know, when I go to college campuses or even churches, I present the evidence for Christianity in four questions. I say, look, if you, if you can answer these four questions in the affirmative, then Christianity is true. Question number one, does truth exist? Obviously, Christianity can't be true if there's no truth. And a lot of people out there say there's no truth. You got your truth. I got my truth. All truth is relative. Don't judge. All these claims, right? You, you hear all this all the time. The second question is, does God exist? Because Christianity can't be true if there's no God. The third question is, are miracles possible? Again, Christianity can't be true if miracles are, are impossible because the central miracle in Christianity is the resurrection. And if resurrections are impossible, Christianity can't be true. And then the fourth question is, is the New Testament reliable enough to tell us the truth about what happened to Jesus of Nazareth? So does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament telling us the truth about the one major event in the New Testament, the resurrection? We're not saying everything has to be inerrant in there. That's not what we're talking about now. We just want to see if they're historically reliable documents, reliable enough to tell us the truth about Christianity. So truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament with regard to the resurrection. Because look, if the resurrection is true, game over Christianity is true. Of course, if the resurrection isn't true, then game over its faults. You might as well sleep in on Sunday and do whatever you want the rest of the week. Paul said something like that in in first paraphrasing. You get the idea. You're facing vain. Christianity is the only world religion I know that its central tenet can be proven or disproven by historical investigation. The resurrection. So. First question, does truth exist? Let's just get that out of the way. You've listened to this program long enough. You know it's self-defeating to say there's no truth. Anyone who says there's no truth, ask them, is that true? It's completely self-defeating. Of course there's truth. If there wasn't truth, the claim there wasn't truth couldn't be true. I know this, this, these kind of things give you intellectual constipation, but that's because they're self-defeating claims. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. It's like saying my parents had no kids that lived. It's like saying my brother is an only child. It's like saying everything I say is a lie. I mean, these are all self-defeating statements. And once you get good at recognizing self-defeating statements, then you can spend your time seeing what really is true. And of course, there's an argument to be made. I know Ed Fazer makes it in his book, Five Proofs of the Existence of God, that if there's truth, God must exist. Why? Because truth has to be grounded in a mind. And our minds are not infinite. Neither are our minds um, eternal. We, we had beginnings. This is why I ask atheists sometimes. In fact, I remember having an atheist at um, University of uh, Wisconsin at Madison. I'd gone through the evidence for Christianity and... I had pointed out that God exists, and I used my standard three arguments, cosmological, teleological, and moral arguments, and I said, look, from those arguments, we know God is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent, a creator who creates and sustains all things. And he said, well, you, you just said that God was spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Can you 
can you think of anything else that's baseless, timeless, and immaterial other than God? I said, yes, the laws of logic. He said, well, I would argue they don't exist then. And, he, and then I said, well, so you're saying they do exist? And he said, no, I'm saying they don't exist. And I said, so you're saying they do exist? He said, no, I'm saying they don't exist. I said, you're saying they do exist. He said, how am I saying they do exist? I said, because you're using them right now to contradict what I'm saying. You're using the very laws of logic that you say don't exist in order to say they don't exist. He said, well, I would argue then, we went back and forth, he finally said, well, we just make these laws up in our minds. In other words, they're human conventions. I said, let me ask you a question. Before there were any human minds on the earth, was the statement, there are no human minds on the earth, true? He didn't like that. He didn't know what to do with it, and he finally admitted, yeah, it would be true. Okay, well, then human minds are not the ground of the laws of logic. Because before there were any human minds, there were things, still things that were true and false. Before there were any human minds, the statement, there are no human minds, was still true. So it, 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 I mean, in a certain sense, he was on the right track that the laws and truths are grounded in a mind, just not our minds. Our minds are finite. They're not eternal. In fact, if the laws of logic did not transcend human beings, then you and me couldn't communicate with one another. I mean, if you had your own private view, the views of the laws of logic, and I had my own, my own private views of the laws of logic, then, then you and I couldn't even communicate. I mean, the laws of logic are a bridge between minds. We didn't invent this bridge, but we use this bridge. Those laws are grounded in God's nature. There is truth out there. If, if there's truth out there, then some kind of mind, eternal, spaceless, timeless, immaterial mind must exist. This doesn't prove necessarily the God of Christianity. It could be the God of Christianity. We don't know that yet. But if there's truth, it's got to be grounded somewhere. In fact, Augustine made this argument long before, of course, Ed Fazer did. But Ed brings it into the modern world. So his book, Five Proofs of the Existence of God, is very good. You may want to check it out and go back and listen to our interview with him uh, back a year and a half or so ago. All right, I'm Frank Turek. It is Resurrection Week. We're talking about it. We're going to get back to it in just a minute. Don't go away. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examined Podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button, or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. Welcome back to Resurrection Week here. No, Easter is not about bunnies and chocolate, although I like bunnies and chocolate. It's about the fact that Jesus of Nazareth walked out of the tomb about 1,986 years ago. Whether he died in 33 AD or 30 AD is up for debate, but let's say 33 AD. 1,986 years ago, he walked out of the tomb. Really? Can you really believe that? Yeah, I think you can. We're going through the evidence for it. So truth exists. We covered that in the last segment. Does God exist? We're not going to go into all the arguments for God. We've talked about them quite a bit on this program before. But yes, there's evidence for God. One piece of evidence for God, in addition to the truth argument I just gave, was the the fact that the universe had a beginning out of nothing. And even atheists admit this. Stephen Hawking famously said that almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning. Now, Hawking tried to come up with another explanation other than God. For the beginning, but he admits the data. What's the data? That space, time, and matter literally had a beginning out of non-being, out of nothing. Well, if that's the case, whatever created space, time, and matter can't be made of space, time, and matter. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create. Why personal? Because impersonal forces don't make choices. 
Only personal forces make choices. You know, gravity doesn't decide that it's going to pull everything to the ground, right? It just does it. But in order to go from a state of nothingness to a state of creation, someone had to make a choice and only a personal being can make a choice. Also, the being would have to be intelligent, again, in order to have a mind to make a choice. Now, ladies and gentlemen, just from the cosmological argument, the argument from the beginning of the universe, we can see we have a being that's spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, and intelligent. Now, when you think of a being like that, who do you think of? Yeah, God. You say, well, Frank, how do you know it's the Christian God? We don't yet. We haven't done enough research yet. This could be Allah. Or this could be some other theistic God at this point. We don't get all the way to the Christian God with one argument. We're simply saying it could be the Christian God. And upon further research, I think we're going to realize that the same being that walked out of the tomb 1,986 years ago is the same being in in, in whose divine nature created the universe. But we're not there yet. You can add the fine-tuning argument to that, the argument from design and life, and of course the moral argument. And when you add those arguments together... You get a being that looks suspiciously like the God of the Bible, a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator who created all things and sustains all things. Again, we're not going to go through the evidence for that here. We're trying to get to the resurrection. I'm just setting the table. So it looks like a being like God exists. So we move on to the third question. After does truth exist, we go to God, does God exist? Now we're at are miracles possible? And a lot of people don't believe in miracles. Or they've never seen one or. You know, anything's more probable than a miracle, they'll say, well, look, what is the greatest miracle in the Bible? No, it's not the resurrection, although that's obviously a very impactful miracle. The greatest miracle in the Bible, as we've said many times before, is the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that verse is true, every other verse is at least possible. And when you have atheists admitting the data for the first miracle, that's pretty good evidence When atheists are admitting (laughs) that the universe had a beginning, that's pretty good evidence for a beginner. So if the first verse of the Bible is true, and it appears to be, then certainly if God can create the universe out of nothing, he can do whatever he wants. It's not logically impossible inside the universe. Of course, he can resurrect Jesus from the dead if he can create the universe out of nothing. Of course, he can part the Red Sea or make axe heads float in water or walk on water or raise the dead or heal the sick. Of course he can do that if he can create the universe out of nothing. Well, when atheists are admitting the data for the first verse, even though they don't think it was God, it's really hard to figure out what else it could be. It can't be more nature. Nature was created. Nature can't be the cause. It must be something beyond nature. Something spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. I mean, if all nature came into existence, which is what the, which is what the evidence shows, and all time came into existence, which, what the, which is what the evidence shows. In fact, you don't even need, you don't even need um, science to show that the universe had a beginning. You just need what's called the Kalam cosmological argument that time had a beginning. Now, how do we know time had a beginning? Well, let me ask you a question. If there were an infinite number of days before today, would today have ever arrived? Think about that. No, why? Because if there's an infinite number of days before today, then to, then you'd always have to live another day before you got to today. Why? Because there's an infinite number of days before today. But since today is here, there must only be a finite number of days before today. Well, if there's a finite number of days before today, that means time had a beginning. And if time had a beginning, whatever created time must be timeless, which also partially answers the question, or at least is 
one way to answer the question. When somebody says, who made God? The answer is nobody. God is the unmade maker, the uncreated creator. He's outside of time. If he's outside of time, did he have a beginning? No. If he didn't have a beginning, does he need a cause? No. No, he is the uncaused first cause. He is the great I am. So, you don't even need science to show that the universe had a beginning. Now, when you go to science and you look at Einstein's theory of general relativity, which basically said that space, time, and matter are correlative, that they came into existence together. If time had a beginning, so did space and matter. So, they all came into existence together, according to Einstein. So, again, if that's the case, we've got a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent creator that brought it into existence. So, miracles certainly are possible if God exists. Again, if he can do Genesis 1-1, he can, he can do any, any miracle that you read about in the Bible. So, yes, miracles are possible. Now, some people will say, well, look, Frank, I, I can't believe in miracles because I've never seen one. Well, last year about this time, I think we did five programs on miracles. And by the way, friends, if you're listening to the podcast routinely, thank you so much. And thank you for going to the official Cross-Examined podcast on iTunes and putting some nice reviews up there. That really helps it move up the charts, which means more people will see it or hear it. Uh, So keep doing that if you would. Uh, But I want to point out that most of the time we're trying to do evergreen shows here. You You can go back in our archive five years, and most of the time you're going to hear something that is an evergreen show, meaning it's just as applicable today as it was five years ago. Now, every once in a while, we'll cover a current topic that might not have applicability later. But even when we're doing that, we, uh, we try and, and, and put forth timeless principles to address the current topic. So hopefully you can use those principles to address topics we're dealing with today. But go back just a year ago. Listen to the program I did with... Um, with Lee Strobel. I did two with Craig Keener. Craig Keener, the famous, or the famous, he's not very famous, he should be, he's brilliant, um, but the uh, the scholar that wrote the, the two-volume work on miracles. These are even modern-day miracles he's talking about. He's not just talking about miracles that occurred in New Testament times. Oh, by the way, there, there doesn't have to be miracles occurring today for Christianity to be, to be true. Once the last apostle died, if there, haven't, if there hasn't been a miracle since then, Christianity is still true. You don't need modern-day miracles to show that Christianity is true. This is why when atheists say, well, why doesn't God you know, heal amputees? Or why doesn't God do X, Y, or Z? He doesn't have to do any of that to show that Christianity is true. He's already showed it's true or shown it's true. Now, I'm, I'm not saying miracles don't occur today. Craig Keener would say they do, and he's given some good evidence that they, they do. All I'm saying is they're not necessary for Christianity to be true. So go back and listen to those shows on miracles because I spent, can't spend a lot of time on them right here. In fact, this is actually going to be a two-part series that we're doing right now on the resurrection. We're going to do part one today and part two next week. But in any event, even, even with that airtime, we don't have enough time to cover all the evidence for the resurrection. But let me just address one thing. When people say they don't believe in miracles, I say, because they've never seen one, I said, well, that's not a good reason to disbelieve something. Why? Because you believe in a lot of things you've never seen. You believe in your mind. Have you ever seen it? No, you're using it right now. You believe in the laws of logic. Have you ever seen those? No, you're using them right now. You believe in justice. Have you ever seen justice? No, you may have seen justice done, but justice is not a physical thing that you see. This is why I sometimes ask the atheists I debate, who are materialists quite often, I'll say, um, how much carbon is in the justice molecule? And they'll say, well, that's a dumb question. Well, it's not a dumb question for you because you claim to be a materialist and you still believe in justice So how do you explain justice by materials? You don't think there's any immaterial reality. 
Well, justice is not a material thing. It's an immaterial thing. You don't see it. It's not made of molecules, but you've seen it done. You know what it is, which shows you that materialism is false. You've never seen love. Oh, you may have been loved. You may have loved, but you've never seen love because it's an immaterial immaterial reality. In fact, I think it was in the second debate I had with uh, Christopher Hitchens, which, again, you can see, I think, on our YouTube channel. And by the way, thanks for uh, liking our YouTube channel. We're up over 100,000 subscribers now, and uh, it's growing quite rapidly. We put a lot of short videos up there from the college campus Q&A videos that people like and can share with one another. And if you go to our website and hit subscribe, you'll get a new video every week. Every Wednesday, we send out a new video. Uh, Just put your email address in there. Or you can also uh, subscribe by simply typing the word evidence, or I should say texting the word evidence to 44222 evidence to 44222. We'll also send you the PDF of the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist presentation and the first chapter of Stealing from God and some other stuff. We don't share your email address with anybody else. It'll stay with us. But just text the word evidence to 44222. Anyway, in this Hitchens debate, someone from the audience asked Christopher, what is love, knowing that Hitchens was a materialist? And Hitchens kind of floated around the topic until he finally said, love is a chemical. And I said, tell that to your wife. I mean, honey, do you love me? Well, as long as I have the chemical. I guess I got the chemical today. Tomorrow I might not have it. No, love is not a chemical. Chemicals may be involved that you have, when you have feelings of love, but, ke- but love itself is not a chemical. If, if, every, if every moral aspect of our lives were completely reduced to chemicals, how could we hold anybody accountable for anything? Oh, I just had the chemical that made me murder that person. Don't kill me or, or don't, don't, don't punish me. I had nothing to do with it. It's just a chemical. no. There are immaterial things that happen all the time or immaterial realities that we know know exist and, and happen all the time that are not completely chemicals, yet you believe in them. You believe in George Washington. You've never seen George Washington. Why do you believe in him then? Because you know there are effects left behind that are best explained by the cause, George Washington. In fact, that's how we know God exists. We have effects that are best explained by God. And we reason back from effect to cause. So we see a creation. We know there must be a creator. We have a moral law written on our hearts. There must be a moral law giver. We reason from effect to cause. We see design in the universe and design in life. There must be a designer. The effect is design. The cause is a designer. So we reason from effect to cause. So when people say, I I won't believe in miracles because I've never seen one. You believe in a lot of things you've never seen. And, and by the way, if miracles do occur, even today, you shouldn't expect to see many of them. Why? Because miracles, by definition, have to be rare to get our attention. If miracles occurred all the time, we wouldn't consider them miracles and they wouldn't get our attention, which is the purpose of a miracle like a resurrection, to get our attention and say, hey, this guy speaks for God. I mean, imagine if resurrections occurred routinely. What would the resurrection of Christ mean? Nothing. You go to somebody and you go, Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was God. And the guy goes, so what? Uncle Leroy just rose from the dead two weeks ago. Now I got to give the inheritance back. No, it can't be a regular event. It's got to be an extremely rare event to get our attention. All right. With that said, we got the table set now. We can get into the evidence directly for the resurrection right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes. Don't go away. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, 
We don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, did it really occur? So far, we've covered the fact that truth exists, that God exists, that miracles are possible. Now we just have to see if the evidence is good enough for us to believe that Jesus literally walked out of that tomb 1,986 years ago in Jerusalem. What evidence do we have for that? Well, let's start out by the fact that we have some very early testimony in the New Testament. What do I mean by early? The documents of the New Testament were all written down, in my view, at least most of them were written down prior to 70 AD. And how do we know this? Well, let's work backwards. We know the temple was destroyed and, of course, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. There's, there's no dispute about that. Everybody understands that to be true. Let's work backwards from the temple. Um, probably in the mid-60s, Paul, the apostle, was killed. There's really no dispute about that. We even have first century evidence for that. Clement of Rome talks about it. And he, he's writing in about 95 AD. Okay. So let's say Paul just dies around, let's just pick out you know, 68 AD, say. Okay. He's in Rome and he, he's, he's executed. Peter, same thing. Um, I may be going out on a limb here, but I'd have to say Paul had to write all of his works before he died. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think it's fair. And these are the undisputed works of Paul. Everybody agrees that 1 Corinthians was written by Paul in about 55 or 56 AD. Now, that's critically important. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians, we have the earliest evidence for the resurrection in the entire New Testament. It's a creed that was memorized orally, and Paul ultimately wrote it down. In 1 Corinthians, turns out now to be chapter 15, and let me say something I may have said here before, but not recently, or I don't say it enough. Ladies and gentlemen, there are no verses in the Bible. Let me say that again. There are no verses in the Bible. The verses were put there 500 or so years ago to help us navigate the text. The problem is, we tend to think, I mean, it's good to be able to navigate the text. It's, 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 it's a very large collection of, of books, as you know, the Bible. <laughs> it would be very difficult to figure out how to find something specifically without chapter and verse. The problem is it makes us think that we can yank one particular verse out of context and make it say whatever we want. That's why I say there are no verses in the Bible. You have to read around it. But if you do go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Verses 3 to 8. What I'm about to read you, even atheist New Testament scholars agree is extremely early, within a year or two of the supposed resurrection. Here's Paul writing. He's writing something that he received, and here's how he puts it. And by the way, when I read this, I want you to, I want you to um, hear how many times you hear the word that. I'm going to say the word that as I read this. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. 
For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, meaning Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, that particular passage, you probably heard five that's in there, is a creed written in a rhythmic way that people would be able to memorize quite easily. And early on, the apostles may have thought that Jesus was coming back sooner than he obviously has. He still hasn't come back yet, quite obviously. Um, So they didn't write anything down initially, but they did have these creeds memorized. And Gary Habermas, the world-renowned expert on the resurrection, whom we've had on this program several times, says that uh, in his book, The Historical Jesus, he's identified 41 of these short little creeds in the New Testament that were originally memorized orally, and yet then they were put down into writing once Paul started writing letters. And this letter, it's indisputable when, when it was written. It's 55 or 56. We're not exactly sure exactly the year, but it's one of those two years. And that particular passage goes all the way back to the event itself. So we have very early testimony. Now, who does he say appeared to? He's got the 12 in there. He's got 500 brothers and sisters, which would have been easy to refute. Uh, in other words, Paul would have exposed himself as a liar if he had said that, and then they could find nobody who had seen the risen Jesus. He's basically telling people, look, check this out. There's still a lot of people still alive. I mean, this happened 20 years ago, friends, but there's people still alive who can tell you about this. And he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and of course to him. This is early testimony. This is not legendary. This is not the stuff of legend. It is eyewitness testimony in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. Also, the book of Acts, we know, must have ended by 62 AD for a number of reasons. We explain all these reasons, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, but the short answer is, um, do you notice that uh, Luke ends... The, the book of Acts abruptly with Paul under house arrest in Rome. And during the book of Acts, there are two major characters. Peter's kind of in the first half and Paul's in the second half. And Luke takes the time to record the martyrdoms of Stephen and uh, John, not the John of uh, who wrote the gospel, but another John. And he records these martyrdoms But he doesn't record the martyrdoms of the two main characters, Peter and Paul. Why do you think he doesn't? Probably because he's already written the the book and those two people are still alive. And we know that James, by the way, was killed by the Sanhedrin. Now, this is this is Jesus's brother, his half brother. He's killed by the Sanhedrin. He's thrown off the Temple Mount, and then they stone him to death in 62 A.D. Now, who, who, who tells us this? Josephus. In fact, this is not even in any New Testament document. Josephus, the Jewish writer who was probably in Jerusalem at the time. In fact, he, he was born in 37 A.D., lived about 100 A.D., became a Roman. Or he won favor with the Romans after initially rebelling against them, and he became the greatest Jewish historian. And uh, he tells us that James is killed by the Sanhedrin. And another writer, Hegesippus, tells us the same thing. And that's 62 AD. 
And, and, and Paul, I should say, Luke, in the book of Acts, makes no mention of this. Now, you say, Frank, this is an argument from silence. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty big argument, though. <laughs> You're going to record the martyrdoms of relatively minor characters, but not the martyrdoms of the two people Peter and Paul, who are the main characters in your text, and you're not going to record the brother of Jesus who's martyred right in Jerusalem by the Sanhedrin? Please. You're not going to mention the onset of the Jewish war in 66 AD? No, Acts is written early. And if Acts is written early, so is Luke. Why? Because Luke is the gospel that um, the the writer of the book of Acts wrote. (laughs) Luke has written both. And when he starts the book of Acts, he says, in my former work, O excellent Theophilus. What's the former work? The Gospel of Luke. So he writes Luke to Theophilus, and then he writes Acts to Theophilus as well. So if Acts is written by 62, Luke must be before the book of Acts, obviously. And I think it has to be before 55 or 56 AD, maybe even significantly before. Why? Well, we have this, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, but our friend Jay Warner Wallace has a nice article on his website, coldcasechristianity.com. And here is the, I just tweeted this out a couple of days ago. Um, the the uh, title of his article is Why I Know the Gospels Were Written Early. And here's what he says uh, about um, Paul quoting Luke. This is Jay Warner Wallace. He says, Paul quoted Luke, Luke's gospel in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, Paul seems to be familiar with the gospel of Luke when he wrote wrote to the Corinthian church, and uh, he describes, basically, the Lord's Supper exactly the way Luke describes it in Luke's gospel. In 1 Corinthians 11, he's using Luke's account of the Last Supper. So obviously, Luke's gospel would have to exist prior to Prior to Paul writing 1 Corinthians, the only way of getting around that would be, say, unless Luke is traveling with Paul, and he is at a certain point. Maybe he just told Paul. That's possible. But then, as J. Warner Wallace points out, uh, Paul also quotes Luke's gospel in another area. In 1 Timothy 5, he says this, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul quoted two passages of scripture here, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. You shall not muzzle an ox while he is threshing refers to Deuteronomy 25.4, and the laborer is worthy of his wages refers to Luke 10.7. It's clear that Luke's gospel was already common knowledge and accepted as scripture by the time this letter was written. That's the best explanation, it seems to me. Again, the only way around that would be to say, well, Luke just told Paul. Well, you could say that, but not if Paul calls it scripture, which is what he's doing here. He's not just saying, Luke told me this. He's saying, the scripture says this, which means Luke's document, his gospel must have been in place Certainly prior to Paul writing 1 Timothy, and probably prior to Paul writing writing 1 Corinthians in 55 or 56 AD. So, we have early testimony here, and of course, it's virtually universally recognized that Mark is prior to Luke, or I should say that Mark is primary, so it would be prior to Luke. Well, again, if Luke is prior to 55 or 56, and Mark is prior to that, we've got early testimony already. Do you see how early this is? 
This is not, there's nothing like this from the ancient world with other with other writings. When you get something by written by eyewitnesses or people who knew eyewitnesses within a generation of the event, that's amazing testimony from an historical perspective. So we've got very early testimony. In fact, I even think the Gospel of John was written prior to 70 A.D. Why? Because in Matthew, Matthew, in John chapter 5, he talks about the Pool of Bethesda. Well, the Pool of Bethesda was destroyed in 70 A.D. And John talks about it as if the pool is there in John 5, 2. In fact, I asked uh, Dan Wallace. Dan actually teaches a, a course for us at uh, go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see his course on on the, the New Testament manuscripts. He teaches a course for us. He's the, the famous scholar from uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. And I asked uh, Dan, I said, Dan, I'm looking at John 5, 2. It really seems like John is speaking like the temple is still standing while he's writing. What do you think about that? And he said, you know, I did a research project on that 25 years ago, Frank. I spent hours and hours on it, and I came to the same conclusion, that John is written early. So we've got early testimony here, friends. And that's part of establishing the fact that the resurrection has good evidence behind it. We're just getting started. So don't don't go away. We're going to talk more about evidence for the resurrection right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek, American Family Radio Network, our website, crossexamine.org. That's crossexamine with a D on the end of it, .org. We've also got some fabulous courses coming up. The Essentials of the Faith course is coming up May 6th, I think we start. You can be a part of that, and I'll be the teacher. We're going to be live on Zoom video eight times for Q&A. Sign up soon, though. We're running out of seats. All right, see you soon. Don't go away. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type Cross-Examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. If you'd really like to be better at presenting the evidence for Christianity and answering questions, you want to be part of our Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, our 12th annual Cross-Examine Instructor Academy. Three days of intense training, not just from me, but from Greg Kokel, from David Wood, from Richard Howe, from Brett Kunkel, many other instructors, uh, Elisa Childers. They're all on our website, crossexamine.org. The problem with CIA is we have to shut it down after we get so many applications because... Not only do we present to you, you present to us, and so we have to have enough instructors to evaluate you, and that means we have to limit the class, which is a good thing if you get in, because you'll just be hanging out with us for three days, and you can ask us questions over lunch, over dinner, you know, just hanging out, in addition to uh, to going through the formal part of the program. But you have to apply. You have to go to crossexamine.org and uh, apply to CIA, the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy. This year, it's August 8 to 10. It's in Brooklyn, New York. Forget about it. We're going to have good coffee. Anyway, you want to make sure you can be there. And in order to do that, sign up soon or apply soon because uh, we, we cut it off after we get about 60 or so. We can't get much, much bigger than 60. Uh, it's not cheap, uh, but it is. And by the way, it's we don't make money on this. This is just the cost to do everything. In fact, we lose a little money doing it, but. Check out the uh, the website, crossexamine.org, and uh, fill out the application soon. I think the deadline is sometime in June, I want to say, early June. Anyway, get on it quickly, because once we fill up, we fill up. All right, there's 
as we're going through the evidence here for the resurrection, we, we're just talking about the fact that there's early testimony. We've got a lot more evidence to cover. We'll cover some of it here in this segment, and then next week we'll cover more. But I, before we, uh, we sign off for this week, I want you to know about a new video we've put out expressly for Resurrection Sunday for Easter. It's a very short video. It's only one hour. One hour. It's one minute and 40 seconds long or so. And uh, it gets to the nub of why Christianity is true and why the Bible did not give us Christianity. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but the Bible did not give us Christianity. And we'll cover more of this next week. I just want to play it for you here in a minute. And you can go to our YouTube channel and share it with others this Easter Sunday. It's a good opportunity to get a conversation started. It's only a minute and 41 seconds or a minute and 40 seconds. And we're just going to play the audio now. It's, it's got complete graphics you can see once you see it on YouTube. Let's play it right now. Here it is. Remember, this is the new YouTube video at crossexamine.org. Here it is. The reason we believe in Christianity is because an event occurred, the resurrection. Now, I have to ask you this. Why would the Jewish writers of the New Testament, all were Jewish with the exception of Luke, Why would they invent a resurrected Jesus? Why would they say that a man who claimed to be God rose from the dead if it didn't happen? They thought that would be blasphemy for a man to claim to be God. And why would they invent a resurrected Jesus? They already thought they were God's chosen people. They had no motive to invent a resurrected Jesus. And certainly they could not have invented it in Jerusalem where an empty tomb existed. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, the New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. There would be no New Testament if it wasn't for the resurrection. Now, even if the New Testament never existed, Christianity would still be true. Why? Because Christianity is based on an event. The resurrection. Do you realize there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Why? Because an event occurred the resurrection. You have to have more faith to believe it didn't occur than it did. And if God exists, and he does, and he create the universe out of nothing, then he can certainly resurrect Jesus from the dead. That's why we believe in Christianity. Go to the YouTube channel, crossexamine.org, and share that particular video. Again, a minute, 40 seconds. It's called Why the Bible Didn't Give Us Christianity. We had, I think... Almost 20,000 views in the first day and a half we put it up. So people uh, seem to like it. It's very short, gets right to the point. And the point here is, is that people sometimes fail to understand the Bible didn't give us Christianity. Christianity gave us the Bible. Or put another way, the New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. You wouldn't even have a New Testament written by Jewish followers of Yahweh in the first century unless Jesus rose from the dead. Why would they invent this? Why would they get themselves beaten, tortured, and killed for something that wasn't true? They wouldn't. That's the point. Now, of course, we wouldn't know much about Christianity if the New Testament hadn't been written. But... The fact that the New Testament was written is a testament to the fact that the resurrection must have occurred. Otherwise, you wouldn't even have a New Testament. Jews wouldn't have invented this. Nobody expected a resurrection during the middle of time. They expected a resurrection of everybody at the end of time. Daniel 12, 2 talks about that. 
but they didn't expect somebody would be resurrected before the end time. Someone in the middle, like Jesus. They weren't expecting this. And when it happened, then their eyes were opened and they realized that the scriptures in the Old Testament did talk about this, although they didn't realize it until Jesus had risen from the dead. In other words, they got the box top to the puzzle when Jesus rose from the dead. They couldn't put the pieces together of the Old Testament prior to Jesus rising from the dead. But once he did, they said, aha, now we have the box top to the jigsaw puzzle. Now we know how to put it together. So it's not invented. But we'll cover that more next week. I want to go to the second line of evidence that we have that the New Testament writers are telling us the truth about the resurrection and the fact that they put eyewitness testimony throughout the text. In fact, there are historical crosshairs in the text of the New Testament that they never would have invented. In fact, I'm just going to read you two sentences. And as I read these two sentences, does it sound like this writer is making up a story? Here are the two sentences. Actually, this is just one long sentence, but here it is. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Tractonicus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Does that sound like this guy's making up a story? No, he's given an exact date. And by the way, who is this? This is Luke again. This is, this is Luke Luke's gospel, the third chapter, first two verses, Luke 3, 1 and 2. An exact date is given, 29 AD. How do we know? Because the 15th, reign of, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar was 29 AD. All eight people he, know, he, he mentions in this that I just read are known from history. They're all known to live at this exact time. I mean, it would be like somebody saying today, you know, it was the uh, the third year of the Trump administration. Uh, uh, vice president, uh, the vice president was Mike Pence. The uh, speaker of the House was Nancy Pelosi. The head of the Senate was uh, Mitch McConnell. The uh, the attorney general is uh, is uh, a bar. Uh, I mean, the secretary of state is Mike Pompeo. Everybody would know what I'm talking about, right? That's what's going on here. He's using real people to say this is when this happened. He's not making this story up. He's given, and he, remember, he's writing to this guy, Theophilus, who may have been some Roman official. We don't actually, actually know who he was, but it may have been some Roman official. He's trying to just lay all this orderly out or, or, or lay all this out in an orderly way, he says in the very first couple of verses of uh, the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is so accurate that when he records the, the, uh, the book of Acts, there are 84 historically confirmed eyewitness details just from chapter 13 to the end of the book, chapter 28. And some of these details are obscure. Like, who is the ruler in an obscure town? You know, like, a, who is the mayor? He gets it right. Uh, what was the, uh, the strange slang language spoken there? He gets it right. Uh, what are the, the weather patterns in a particular part, part of the Mediterranean, a particular part of the year? He gets it right. Luke even has the depth of the water off Malta right when they run ashore. He says they took soundings. It was 120 feet, you know, when they're being shipwrecked. Then they took soundings again. It was 90 feet. Then they cut the anchors and ran the ship aground. This is in Acts chapter 27. Well, if you go there today, in fact, my friend Bob Cornuke, the real Indiana Jones, who we'll have on this program again here shortly. I just spoke with him last week uh, when we were up at the Cove. He came into town and we had a men's retreat up at the Cove, the Billy Graham Cove, and he really brought the house down with his presentation. He was talking about many of the archaeological discoveries he's been going after. Well, one of them he's gone after, and I think he's found, are the anchors of Paul's shipwreck. 
Not in St. Paul's Bay in Malta, but St. Thomas's Bay. Everything fits. They found four anchors from a first century Corinthian freighter in 90 feet of water back in the 70s. They brought them up. They didn't know what they had. They melted one of the anchors down to dive weights. When Bob discovered this, he said, you got the anchors of Paul's shipwreck here. And so the uh, three other anchors are in the, Vall- the museum in Valletta, the Maritime Museum in Valletta. I think he's got the anchors. There was no shipwreck. A shipwreck was found uh, several hundred yards from where they found the anchors. But anyway, everything fits. Luke's getting all this right. He's getting all these details right. And while he's getting all these details right, he's also saying that Paul is doing miracles. Now, if he's getting all the details right, why would he lie about the miracles? In fact, archaeologist Sir William Ramsey spent 25 years of research in the area that Luke wrote about. And he started skeptical. He didn't think Luke was accurate. But after... After he discovered that Luke references 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands with no mistakes, he went on to say Luke is an historian of first rank. You know, Luke didn't have Google Earth or any of that stuff or any of that. Roman historian A.N. Sherwin-White said for the Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming, the book of Acts. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. That's Roman historian A.N. Sherwin-White talking about the book of Acts. Luke has several other details, eyewitness details in his gospel. One of them is the idea that Jesus sweated blood. We know that that now actually is a medical condition of someone under extreme stress. You can actually sweat blood. Jesus was sweating blood. I mentioned John. The Gospel of John has 59 historical, historically confirmed or historically probable eyewitness details in it. And the New Testament documents cite more than 30 people confirmed by secular sources or archaeology. And... Next week, we'll pick up some of those 30 people and talk about them. Uh, The evidence for the resurrection is quite strong, friends. And as we revisit this topic next week and go into more evidence, um, I think it's beyond any reasonable doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. And the important thing is, is since he did, our gateway to paradise is now open. And you can accept the free gift that Christ has provided by simply accepting what he has done. Go to Romans chapter 10 verse 9 to 14 and read what you must do to be saved. Just believe that he's risen from the dead and you will be saved. Happy Easter, friends. See you next week. He is risen. We hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. If you think our podcast needs to reach more people, here's what you can do to help. Go to iTunes and type cross-examined official podcast, four words in the search bar, and leave us a five-star rating. It'll take you less than five seconds. And if you have a few more seconds to spare, leave us a positive review. The best reviews will be featured on future episodes. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. God bless.